Well, we're excited you're here, um, and again, if we haven't met, um, I want to meet you afterwards, so i um, love to say hi uh, as we connect out, out the door. Um, I have a question for you. How many of you um, are in the camp that if it's new, you're all about it? Like, I got to have the newest thing. No matter what it is, it's better than what it was, and so if it's new, I have to have it. How many are in that camp like the new stuff? No? Really? Not anybody? Just me? Wow. Okay, this is not going to go well. Um, how many of you guys in the other camp? Like, you just really enjoy tried and true. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Wow. I did not know that about this church. Wow. Huh. Write that down. They don't like new. Okay. All right. So we got a building coming up, so you're going to love that. Uh, we're leaving this behind, so good luck with that, too. Uh, and this is really old, too, so you'll love this. Um, so this is going to come into play a little bit later, but okay, so this morning, um, no matter where you land in that camp, uh, this morning, Jesus is talking about a new way of doing life, and he's offering something brand new to all of us. Jesus is starting his ministry. This is kind of his first day on the job, and the book of John will show us, show you, show me, that Jesus is about telling and showing people right out the gate, he is into something new. So the old tried and true, this is going to bother you a little bit. For those who like the new and you're like, I just want the exciting new thing, this is going to be it for you. And he's better than anything. He's better than the old system. He is better than what is currently here. He is the thing, and he is better than anything we can imagine. You're going to see in the book of John, specifically in the book of John, that John will give us stories that show us that Jesus is the new way of doing things. So this morning, we're going to look at the new wine, but also you're going to see that after the new wine, you see that John shares a story where Jesus is the new temple. He's the new life. We're going to look at that next week. And then he's also the new creation. He's the new access to the Father. Everything about Jesus is brand new. This is a new thing of way of looking at things. For the Jewish people and the audience that was there, they would have looked at this and said, this is something new. God is up to something new. And that's where we're going to jump in this morning. So let's do that. Let's just jump in this morning. John chapter 2. If you have your uh, discussion guides, those are great for you here. Uh, If you have your Bibles, jump into those as well. But either way, uh, we're going to jump into the text this morning as we go into John chapter 2, looking at verses 1 to 12, okay? So Jesus begins his ministry. So he's just come off the temptation. He's just come off of the baptism. And now the first thing he's going to do after he's called his disciples to himself. He's beginning his ministry at age 30 years, or I'm sorry, age, uh, yeah, about 30 years old, somewhere in there. He's got three years to kind of get this stuff done. And so he's working together with these guys for these three years, and he begins his ministry of all places. You think of the Son of God, right? And you're like, okay, where's the Son of God going to set up his first ministry? Probably the church. He's going to find like the church in town and that church is going to get all the street cred because like they had Jesus at their church first service. You know what I mean? That's, that's a big deal. Uh, but he doesn't start it actually at a church. He doesn't start it at a synagogue. Jesus starts his earthly ministry at a wedding. And you can't get more joyful than a wedding, right? I just did one this weekend, and uh, the joy and excitement that comes with the wedding, you can't match. And so there's just this joy and excitement that's there. And he's come to this wedding, and they've invited him. And he's also, in, they invited his plus 12. So that's kind of fun. He's come with his entourage into the wedding, and they all kind of make their way to the wedding. And his mother is part of this. She's somewhere in the mix of like planning and prepping because she's needed at this wedding. And he has an interesting conversation with his mother. 
and he'll be asked to do a favor, and this favor will actually change history. This favor will start the earthly ministry of Jesus. So let's read John chapter 2, beginning in 1 and 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Interesting, he uses mother of Jesus was there. He doesn't say Mary. He says mother of Jesus. We'll get to that in a second. When uh, the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, again, doesn't say Mary, said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Does anyone else cringe in that verse? You're kind of like, like I could think like John and the sensitive guys in the group were like, mm, that's your mom, right? Uh, whereas Peter's like, tell her, like, tell her woman, that's fine. Um, and others of you in the room are like, I see nothing wrong with that. And to which I understand, and we could talk about your marriage and your counseling later, but for now, it just kind of seems like a weird kind of like, woman, that's not my problem, okay? Um, woman, that's not, uh, what does this have to do with me? So we pick up. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it out. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, it's interesting asterisk there, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, this is by quotes, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, that's <laughs> so good, ever been to a party where they've drunk freely? Um, it's a treat. Uh, so people had drunk freely, then the, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. That's going to be key. And then it ends, and this is beautiful in verse 12. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, which was where Peter lived. That was kind of his hometown. That's Peter's house was in Capernaum. So he went back to Peter's house, many believe, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Now, Before we jump into the text and kind of dive this around, first off, for the believer in the room, for those who have put their faith into Jesus Christ this morning, my goal is to remind you of the excitement and joy that is found in your Jesus. To remind you that you serve Jesus, you worship him, who came to give you joy and give you freedom this morning. To release you from the mundane and to remind you that following Jesus should be a whole lot of fun. I think so often in church world, it's like, did you, do, did you do the sin again? Yes. Well, you need to confess. Okay. And that just becomes like your week. Jesus says there's so much more than that if you're following Jesus. To the, to the believer in the room, let me just say, I hope this morning spurs on this joy and this excitement and this freedom for you that can be found in this first miracle. For the non-believer in the room who say, you know, I haven't really done that. I haven't put my full weight into Jesus this morning. My goal is to point you to the one who offers you a brand new life and a complete do-over from the way that your life is currently going, and to show you that Jesus is offering you a new and better way to set you free. Not just kind of make your life better, okay? Jesus didn't die on the cross to make your life better. He died on the cross to give you a brand new life that is so brand new that it doesn't even match anything of the old. And he says, I've come that I may set you free. And I hope that that happens this morning. 
Okay? So that's where we're heading. So here we go. Let's jump into the text. Seen as a wedding. There's some argument here at the beginning of the third day. Some argue, was it like the third day that he took three days to get to the wedding, or was this the third day of the wedding? You can go either way. Um, I tend to kind of land the fact that it was the third day of arrival to the wedding. You could also debate it and say, well, no, I think it's the third day of the wedding. The reason that you can say that it was the third day of the wedding is here's the fun note about weddings back at this time. Weddings in the time of Jesus would have lasted a minimum of seven days. That's just awesome, right? You know, and it's, 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 it's like minimum to go seven, but most would last two weeks. And it wasn't just like that the ceremony took two weeks. That would be a long ceremony. It was the fact that when you brought family in from out of town and when everybody gathered for the wedding, it was a two-week party. I mean, imagine that. Like you call your boss, hey, um, I'm not going to be in for two weeks. Uh, I'm heading to a wedding. And they're like, what kind of wedding are you going to this two weeks? You're like, the best. And so this was a long party for two weeks. I love this because here's the deal. This is a side note. This is a rabbit trail. But when you serve Jesus, isn't it cool to think that when you serve a God who's this kind of God, who's like the customs and the traditions of the Jewish people, I get those. I was part of those. I made those. And he thinks this two-week party, that's just like who he is. He loves the good scene. He loves the party that's there. And he's just, it's just an excitement atmosphere to be there. So Three days could be two-week journey in this whole wedding feast, which means you need a bunch of food and wine and whatever to get you through two weeks, okay? That's, that's a lot of prep um, to get you there, but carve out those two weeks. Here's the other fun part uh, that I think we should all go back to biblically as far as weddings go, and that is at this time and in this culture, the groom, uh, his parents actually paid for the wedding, which I think if we're going to be biblical, we should go back to those days because, amen, right? Because I have three daughters, and so I'm just selfishly saying we should go biblical. So whenever my, my girls find that guy, I'm going to be like, Dude, here's the, th- I'm going to say, dude, dude, here's the thing. You need to know we're going straight biblical with this. So tell your mom and dad, they got to, you know, pay up because this is going to be the best wedding ever. Because uh, I'm going straight customs, that thing. So the groom would pay for the wedding. And the wedding was also this long, just huge party. Now, mother of Jesus comes into this scenario. So they set this party. Jesus was also invited by his disciples. When the wine runs out, the mother of Jesus says to him. Now, Mary comes to him in a panic. She's basically distraught. She says, wait, wait, they've run out of wine. This would have haunted the couple, their parents and the family for a long time in a small town. Imagine kind of this area, like, right? I mean, Lawrence Township or the North Lawrence population, if you look on the websites and stuff, is like 300 people, okay? So think small town. Think 300 people. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everybody's business. Imagine you go into a wedding. They run out of the, the, the wine at the party, and they're then known as that family who ran out of what they needed at the wedding. Or imagine showing up to reception now and the first table's released and they get all of their food. And then you go up and you're the second table to get released. And immediately as you're the second table released, you get to the buffet and there's like one noodle, some sauce and like a half eaten roll. And you're like, and so you just kind of wait and wait for them to refill. And then the, they, they come out, the party planners come out and they're like, there's no more. That's all we got right? And so you probably do what I do. You like take the one noodle and some sauce and cover it up. So it looks like you have a full plate and you walk back and you're like, this is going to be rough. And you watch this table after table after table is released and there's no food, right? And then they have to get up and make the announcement. Hey, we apologize to the hundred and so of you that are here. Uh, We're out of food. So you're going to have to just kind of 
We got water, maybe. And so it was just this embarrassing thing that would have happened, especially back then. And so this would have been horrible. horrible. So Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And Jesus responds to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, here's our, here's our passage. You can look at this one of two ways. You can look at this and you can say, this was the polite version of like the South, right? When I lived in South Carolina and I went to my ninth grade year and I was in biology class, I had this whole row in front of me that whenever the teacher said something, they'd be like, uh, yes, ma'am, uh, I have my assignment due and it is not quite due, but I want you to honor it instead, ma'am. And every time they get to me and I'm like, what? You know what I mean? From the Northwest, we're like, oh, you're, you're up north? Okay, we get that, sweetie. You just go over there with your unsweetened tea. We're going to talk to ma'am up here, right? So it could be ma'am. It could be this kind of respect that is there. It could have been cultural. Or it could have just been straight up offensive, right? It could have been Jesus just being like, no, I'm separating myself out. It is not going to be called mom. I'm, not going to go, I'm going to go official, proper title of woman, and you can land in one of those three camps. It's up for debate. I kind of land on both. I think this was a respectful term. I think this was meant to be a ma'am or a, uh, an honoring of Mary. You see, the only other time that he uses the word woman is at the cross, where he says uh, to John and the disciple, he says, I want you to know that you're going to take care of Mary. And he says, woman, look at your sons and that whole thing. But I think it's both. I think it's respectful, but it's also a term of separation because Jesus was separating himself out from just being Mary's son. He is separating himself out to signal this is the start of my ministry. It's almost like he sees this as the official start of his ministry. He knows that God has ordained for this to happen. He's been sanctioned to do something about this problem. And now he says, okay, I'm separating myself out. I'm beginning my ministry. And so he clearly says, mom, I love you, but this is bigger than you. This is bigger than just you wanting me to fix your problem right now. I can't just do whatever you want me to do anymore. I don't know if you've ever had that conversation with your parents before. That's a fun conversation to have that's just kind of awkward, right? Because you want to respect them and you want to love them, but there's certain things you will and won't do when you become a grown adult, hopefully, um, that you've separated yourself out. And uh, he's having that conversation with his mom. This isn't just about what you want me to do. This wine thing is not your call. This wine thing is God's call, and I got to listen to him. And so Mary hears this, and here's the beauty. She understands this, and she respects it. And so her, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you, right, in verse 5. That's cool. His mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. In other words, I get this. It's not going to be my call. So whatever Jesus says is going to be the right thing to do. This is where the story gets interesting in verses 6 and 7. Now, there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Six stone jars. This is kind of close. Uh, I was talking to Mark earlier, and I said, I don't think this is quite 20 gallons. This may be a 5 to 10 deal. Uh, not quite the scenario, but, but think kind of this size, right? Except probably a little bit bigger and made of clay, so it's even heavier than, than what this thing is. And think less tetanus shot um, and more like just something you just have laying around, and they would have this around for all Jewish ceremonies. And what they would do is they would have these jars filled with water, And it says they were filled for purification rites, right? The rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. These would be around, 
wherever they would hold these temples or wherever they had these feasts or wherever they had these parties. And what you did as a good Jewish person is you would make sure that you washed your hands in it and you kind of like did this kind of deal so that you knew that you were clean for the ceremony. There's a story later in Matthew where the Pharisees come to Jesus and they get on him about the fact that his disciples don't do this. They don't wash their hands. He goes, Jesus, do you know your disciples don't wash their hands? Do you know? Do you know? And Jesus goes off on him. That's a good story. Um, But in this scenario, think of that idea of this, but this also would be used not only for this, but some believe that this would also be the place where after the purification was done, they could fill these with water and they could do dishes, they could do whatever. No matter what, even if you're washing hands in these bad boys, for, 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 for Jesus to say, I want you to fill these with water again, some of you germaphobes, like, you'd be like, mm, can't we just get new jars? Because that doesn't seem right. Uh, even filling them with that kind of water from that kind of place, I don't think this is the right call. But this hand washing would be there. Think, so think like hand washing. Think that bucket on the work site, right, that everybody kind of just does this thing with kind of deal, and then they go and eat lunch, and you're kind of like, no, 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 right? You have all your Purells, you know, you, know, you Purell people. I, I don't believe in Purell, but for those who do, you know, you're lathering up, you're like, you know. Now, think of that kind of scenario here. This is what's happening. This was on purpose. This was a message to the self-righteous among them, probably Nathaniel of the disciples, right, the most pure guy. This was a message to them. This was an attack on their old way of living, and this was basically saying to them, much like the hand-washing thing in Matthew, that this is bigger than just this. And so he has them fill these things with water. And as he fills them with water, there's probably people who were offended by what Jesus did and what he required. And he probably blew up a lot of traditions by filling something like this up like that. And here's the, here's the scenario that I give to you today. Much like the hand-washing thing, filling with water, I believe that God also will do some things in your life to show you and offend you at times, to show you he is better than whatever it is that you're holding on to. A guy that I used to work with uh, at another church said, our goal for Sunday morning should be that someone always leaves unhappy every week. (laughs) He says, if we're pleasing everybody, then we're not winning. You're not here for you. And that may be a tradition that, you know, I just go to church and I I go to church because I get something out of it and that's just what I do and it's for me and I leave. And I've heard plenty of people say from other churches, they've come from other churches, well, I just wasn't being fed at that other church. And part of me wants to have a really nice conversation with them about the fact that, how old are you? You should probably be feeding yourself by now, but that's cool. Uh, You know, there's, there's those scenarios where we just feel like church is here for me. And if it's not here for me and make my needs and what I want, that we get all bent out of shape and we make these really kind of weird decisions based on the fact that we didn't do that song or we didn't sing that thing or they didn't do the thing I wanted them to do. And Christ would, I think, look at those kind of churches and look at these kind of people with these rituals and rites and say, you're missing the point. This isn't about you. He would say, I believe something along these lines, that there is a guarantee that he would give you and he would give me, and that is this. If you could stop for a second in the midst of your frustration of whatever it is that you've been out of shape with, and this doesn't just go to church, this isn't everything, I, I would guarantee you that if you stop for a second in the middle of your frustration, in the middle of your pity party, and ask the question, why is this bothering me? I guarantee you 90% of the time it's because you've drifted and you've believed the lie that the universe owes you something and that the world, the church, exists for the sole purpose to make you happy. 
And that's not the reality this morning. And when I, I just had a scenario last uh, afternoon that I'll just confess to you guys. I was moving some things, and I got really frustrated with my wife and myself because we were moving this desk thing. And as we were moving the, um, the desk thing, I got really bent out of shape because uh, we were moving them, and it wasn't going in right. You know that feeling where you're trying to move something in a truck, and you're trying to get on a time frame, and it's not working, so you decide, let's just shove it in. I shove it in, I start putting it on top, and the world and the universe is against me. God's got a personal vendetta against me this evening. And as I put it on top, I unload it. That's not going to work. We start to unpack, and as I unpack it, wouldn't you know that as I put it on top, we scratched like the entire front of this bookshelf. We, I, let's just not put this as we. No, 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 no. I scratched this entire thing up, right? And I'm mad, I'm upset. And right about that time, as we're getting all this stuff ready, it starts to rain. And I'm like, I'm loving this idea, right? And I started to kind of wig out and I started to kind of have these pity party things and we never should have put this on there. It's Saturday, late afternoon. I just want to be home, blah, 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 blah. And in the middle of that frustration, in the middle of that disappointment, I had to think through this thing of God saying, but you're preaching on this, so you might want to think about it. And I did. And in the middle of my pity party, in the middle of my frustration, in the middle of my sucking it up, it was this thing of saying, the universe owes you nothing, Joel. I don't owe you anything. That this move goes well or that any of this small stuff's important. For you to get bent out of shape, it doesn't really matter. It's not about you anyway. The truth is, Jesus came to make all things new, including the way I handle moving and the, in the way that I handle church and the way that I want things my way. And, and he says, it's not going to be that way. I'm going to make things new. Last truth, and I'll stop on this one. The more life is about you, And I saw this last night in full focus, and I had to apologize to my wife and said, I need you to forgive me. I was a jerk. I was not pleasant whatsoever. And I said, the more life is about you, the more miserable and sad you are. The more life is not about you, the more joyful you will be and the more free you will live. The more life is about you and your little world, I guarantee you, the more sad, depressed, and lonely you will be because it's always about you and the universe owes you something and I didn't get my way and they're gonna pay for me not getting my way and Jesus says there's a new way, there's a new hope here. One of those new ways he talks about is Galatians chapter 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those to the household of faith. These jars were a sign of new living. He takes these jars and he tells the servants to fill them with water to the brim. We don't know if they emptied them. We don't know if this was like, you know, the, the dishwasher scenario. Ever, Maybe it's just me. You get out the dishwasher cup. We don't know if it was this kind of scenario where they rinsed them, but they didn't really rinse them. You ever have that moment where you're drinking something from the dishwasher and you look at the bottom and there's like the oatmeal that your kids had left from yesterday at the bottom and you're like, come on, come on. You know what I mean? Like who doesn't know how to wash a dish, right? And you just get bent out of shape and you're kind of like, that's in me now and I drank that. So that's kind of the deal. We don't know if that was what's happening here, but it probably was somewhat similar because I guarantee you it's not the most clean culture at the point, but there's something in there that could be part of this. And he says, I want you to fill these jars then to the brim with water. And so there's probably some floaties. There's probably some things in there that everybody's kind of like, what's he doing with this thing? Where is he going to go with this? And he wants them to fill them to the brim. And here's why I think he says fill them to the brim. I think he fills them to the brim, one, to show that he is a God of abundance. I think we can see that clearly throughout scripture. But I also think he fills them to the brim to say, hey, here's a deal. I'm going to do a miracle here. 
This isn't going to be like half fermented alcohol and then wine on top, and I'm going to kind of, kind of mix the two together, and you just kind of just got to do this on the way into the groom's thing. I want you to fill them to the brim with water. And as they're filled to the brim with water, there is no magic trick involved. There's no way you can fit more into this thing to turn water into wine. There's no way somebody can say, well, he just mixed half and half, like the Kool-Aid thing in the igloo container. He just kind of mixed them together and he got the right recipe. No, this was he filled them to the brim with this water. And then as he fills them with this water, he doesn't tell them anything. He just says, go serve it. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Like he says, fill the brim with water. And then he starts to take them over. And I'm wondering at what point in the journey into the ceremony, did they start to look down and be like, that's, that's wine. Like, I mean, at what point did that actually happen to the servants who were like carrying this thing and it's kind of sloshing around and, and they bring it into the party and it's filled with wine. This is no magic trick. This is a celebration. This is what God does. This is his first miracle to prove that he is God. The purpose of turning the water into the wine was not just because he wanted to show off. It was because he was showing them that there is a new way, a new God, and, and not, not a new God, but a new way of looking at God and saying, this is now me in flesh, becoming God, making this miracle happen. Just so you know, this would be the equivalent of about 120 to 180 gallons of wine that he just made. So perspective-wise, right? Okay, so what does that mean gallon-wise? My wine bottle doesn't say gallon. If it does, we got issues, okay? If you're buying gallon-sized wine, you, you've had rough days. I get that, all right? But most you know, bottles, if we take the equivalent of what he made and we throw it into today's term, it's just shy of 950 bottles of standard wine, right? 950 bottles of wine have just been made by Jesus by saying, water is now turned into wine. Jesus is offering them in abundance. He is the well that won't run dry. He is the spring of water that runs forever. He is a reservoir that cannot be drained. He is the one who will always be available and so they make this wine, they take it into the master of the feast. And again, I don't, wanna, I don't want much in life, but when the girls get married, I feel that at least, you know, flipping the bill, they should at least refer to me as the master of the feast. That's another thing I want in my wedding. Um, they refer to him as master of the feast. That's just awesome. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now it became wine. And they did not know where it came from. Those servants had not even drawn water. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first. But when people have drunk freely, then the poor. But you have kept the good wine until now. This new wine is a symbol of new satisfaction. This is no like white Zen stuff. This is no Folgers kind of coffee. I don't know beer, beer world, but this is no like whatever your top brew is. This is no like that kind of category. This is brand new, best ever. This is new wine. This is joy. This is freedom. This is a better way of life. This is Jesus proving he's better than the best. This is what this is. And he's offering it to these people and they taste and they see. And the servants must have seen, Mary must have known, the disciples must have known what had happened, but nobody at the wedding knew that this was actually Jesus performing a miracle. They just thought this was the best wine we've ever had in our life. And they enjoyed it and drank freely and there was much joy. Amen. Yes, there was. And this was the first sign Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. He manifested his glory. He showed his true self. His disciples believed in them. They followed with their heads, and now they're being transformed in their heart. Now they truly believe, wait, this is the son of God. If this guy can do this, this is new. We've never seen this before. And they believe that he is God. 
But then he tells me, hey, the hour's not yet come. Let's just kind of keep this under wraps. Let's just kind of be here. Let's just kind of talk about this on our own. And here's the thing that I think this first miracle of Jesus shows us and why I feel like this needs to go in the top 10 of series is because this turning water into wine was the first miracle ever recorded by Jesus. This was the first one ever done. This is the first thing he ever did. This is the first sign that he is God. And it is pointing us as Christians to enjoy the fact that of all the miracles that could have showed off God's Godhead, he chose turning water into wine. He chose a wedding. He chose a celebration as the first miracle. That, that's, just, that's just amazing. He's trying to communicate, this is good. This is awesome. I am a good God. I am a God who enjoys a good party. I am a God who enjoys a good life. This is joy. This is, this is satisfaction in this new thing. For non-Christians, it is an opportunity that he's giving to you to say, I'm offering you a new life and a new joy that trumps all the other things you've tried to put joy in in the past. This new wine, this new life, the disciples believe. And now they're no longer worrying about ceremonial cleansing and washing of hands. Now they are following Jesus, who is the giver of this new wine and new life. This one who gives this new wine and new life as we finish up is one who we realize that will never be able to run out of this new wine, this new life for us. When we're out of joy, when we're out of life and energy to do life, when we feel exhausted, we have one we can go to and says, I'm always here to give you more. I'm always here to sustain you. When we feel exhausted, we can revert back to our old selves. Isn't it true? Like when you're tired, when we were moving that stuff last night, I was tired. I didn't want to do that stuff. I, I reverted back to my old self, my old things. And, and it was just kind of this thing of like, where did that come from? It was just part of being exhausted. We revert back to our old selves, keeping score, being more moral than the other person, being judgmental, being ceremonial. And yet in all of those things, he says, I don't want, I don't want the old way. I want the new way of living life. And I want to close with this. And I, I think this matches where he was um, aiming as well. One, obviously, it was his deity that was on display. We know that. It was his first miracle. It was the changing of water into wine that says, this is a new system. This is a new way of looking at salvation. I have come that you may have it freely. And then, I believe this is also part of it as well, in Psalm chapter 4, which we read earlier. Verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abounds. He says, I am a new and better system. And when you follow me, there is a new joy here and a new excitement that only I can bring. And so the question this morning is simply this. One is, um, have you experienced that? Um, Have you put your faith into Jesus Christ to have the new joy? And secondly, it's the question of how you doing? Do you, do you have that regular joy? Is that kind of a thing for you, or is it just kind of this life is kind of more mundane? And here's, here's what I want to offer you. This isn't uh, going to be a three-step, five-step process to more joy, because I don't think that's how it works. Um, I don't find that, you know, if you just do A, B, and C, then you're just going to be a joyful person. Um, here's what I do know, though. If you find your life is difficult right now, and many of you are there, right? Maybe this week has been that kind of week where you're just like, man, I, I hear you. It's been a while since I've had that, but man, I, I don't know. Um, maybe you have lived this week and your week has been really awesome. And you're like, man, I, I've been 
been a really good week. It's been pretty satisfactory. Maybe your life's been like our week, though, in the fact that there's been so many schedules and things to get to and things to get done that we've kind of missed the joy factor in all of it. We just kind of wonder, yeah, we're doing the right thing. Yes, we're being the good Christian people we should. Yes, we're not making any dumb choices, but we just aren't living life. Does that mean, you know what I mean? You can be doing all the right things and not be living, right? You can be doing all the right things and not be fully joyful, let me give you one way I feel like it would be really beneficial for you in this idea of joy this morning. The Bible is very clear about the idea of us being a relational people, that we as humanity even are meant to be relational. And I believe there is nothing more relational than a wedding <laughs> to start this first miracle. And I believe that if you want more joy in your life, it's going to take relational time. What do I mean by that? Not counseling session stuff, not like deep, you know, I got to share my emotions and feelings. Here's what I'd offer you, though. If you find when you're in seasons of life where you're just not joyful, here's what I encourage you to do. Find somebody within this body or somebody that is another believer and, and, and just ask them one question. Hey, let me ask you, what, God's been, what has God been doing in your life this month? Is there anything like he's been working on, anything he's been showing you, anything that's been part of that? And when you ask the question, what normally happens is this. It gets awkward, right? People get kind of weird or on the spot, and they kind of think, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure what God's been doing in my life. I'm not sure. But every time, let me tell you this, though. Every time when we've had conversations like that, when I've had conversations like that, ultimately what happens is their joy increases, and so does mine. I leave the conversation saying, huh, he's still moving. He's still doing stuff. I heard some stories this week, and I, I won't repeat all of them because I don't have permission, but there's been a lot of good stories this week. that I've just, What's God been doing in your life this week? Man, he's been moving this around, or he's been changing this, or he's been really growing me in this, and, and, and he's really, I've never wanted to be in this situation, but I'm learning something in the midst of this situation. And he's just been, he's just been faithful this week. He's just been, he's just been steady. To which I leave the conversation like, amen, that is so awesome, right? That is so cool that we can have those conversations among believers and just say, what has God been doing in your life that's just really exciting? What's he doing in your life? That's one way, I think, to change the joy in your life. I think the other one is a step two, and this is for those who have gotten past step one. Because here's the reality. I think as Christians, we're, we, we have a hard time even asking how, what God's doing in the life of another Christian. Even that seems weird. It's even harder to go on the other side and say to my neighbor across the street who doesn't know Christ, hey, can I talk to you about what God's been doing in my life? Can I just share with you kind of what God's doing? To which they're going to maybe humor you and say, yeah, sure, tell me what's going on. But here's the other thing I would challenge you to do. You want more joy? Here's what I would challenge you to do to that, that, that friend of yours that you're friends with, that you've been praying for, that they would come to know Christ and they would do it in a powerful way. Here's what I'd ask you to do. Just ask them one question. Hey, can I pray for you about something? I have maybe once, twice in my whole life, there's probably been two and I remember them vividly, where I said, hey, can I pray for you? And they're like, nope. <laughs> I was like, cool. Well, you have a good day, you know? But most of the time when you ask, if you were like, yeah, sure, I'll pray for me all the time. Yeah, go ahead. And my joy is increased because of relationship. For those introverts in the room, this is scaring you to death. I get that. You're kind of like, <laughs> I knew he was going to do that to me, right? Just one, somebody here, just ask it. Then kind of just, you know, have your wife pull you aside real quick. Honey, we got to go. Oh, I'm sorry, I got to go. Oh, thank God. Thank you for getting me out of that. That was way too close. You know, I get that. That's fine. 
But I'm telling you, the more you hear about each other's life and the more relational you become, the more joy will increase in your own life. Because God's created us to be a relational church. We started that way. We're going to continue that way. My fear for Community Bible Church, and I know this is a rabbit trail, but my fear for Community Bible Church is we start to turn into all the other churches and we lose the thing that got us here. The thing that got us here as Community Bible Church is that we were a relational, highly relational church. That when you walk through these doors, for better or for worse, you walk in, you're like, "Uh uh-oh. We are not going to be able to hide in here. <laughs> this is not good, right? For those who, you know, that's your thing. Others, if you've come in these doors and you've felt the people and you know the relationships and you're like, man, this is the place. This is awesome. This is not normal. The church, this is, they, they care about each other. I hope and pray and continue to pray that as we grow as a body, as we continue to have more and more people coming, that we don't lose who we are. Because the relationship side is crucial to this thing called Christianity. And if he died for the sake of new birth and new life to be relational, then we should walk in it. And that's my hope. So here's my challenge this week. Find somebody this week. And I just want to encourage you, just do it. Just try it out. And just ask the weird question. You can do it right at the beginning, which is more fun, because then they're like, uh, um, uh, 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 <laughs> it's always fun. Or you can do it kind of like in the middle of a conversation, you got to know them. You can ask a neighbor across the street, hey, how can I pray for you? I guarantee you, after that conversation, there will be this satisfaction, like, man, God is still doing things, and that's amazing to be part of. So that's my challenge. I hope you can do that this week, um, just to continue to be that kind of church as we move forward. So let's close out together. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song as we head out together and um, continue to love Christ through the midst of all of it. God, we thank you so much for turning this water into wine. We thank you for the first miracle that could have been any kind of miracle that you wanted. You could have chosen to do anything, and yet you chose one at a highly relational place. You chose one that happened at a wedding. You did it to show your deity. You did it to show your sovereignty. You did it to show that you trust the Father. And I love the fact, God, that we may not miss this. May we not miss the fact that after you did the miracle, it wasn't just come and see me, come and see me, come and see me. You went away to Capernaum and you hung out for three days. You just hung out. You just relaxed. You just talked with mom, dad, brothers, disciples. And you were just away for three days having good conversation. God, I pray that as a church we would stay highly relational. We would see that you are not just working in my own life. You are working with us as a body of believers. So as the family goes, so I go. And so we want to be a church that remembers that you are a relational God and you are worthy of the praise this morning. It's in your powerful, life-changing name we pray. Amen.